Welcome to Expositional Excerpts. I'm your host, Matthew Pilch. I pastor Grace Fellowship Baptist Church in Port St. Lucie, Florida. Let's dive into the Word. In today's episode, we will be picking up the text in Genesis 33, starting in verse 8. We didn't quite make it through uh, the first point in our previous episode. This whole chapter is about Jacob and Esau's reconciliation, and in verses 1 to 11, we saw that God is able to bring about reconciliation in spite of weak faith, noticing that Jacob is still bearing some markers of weak faith in his own life. And of course, the overarching principle that guides us through the entire chapter is that believers ought to trust and acknowledge God in the midst of difficult circumstances. But as we move toward that uh, idea and, and bolster that, we see first that God does these things in spite of weak faith. And we haven't finished quite delving into that section yet. So verses 1 to 11, he does this, and we see in verses 1 to 3, sometimes believers demonstrate weak faith. We see that with Jacob's behavior. Then in verses 3 to 7, God can work in great ways despite our weak faith. That's where we left off at the previous episode. And now as we continue in this idea that God is able to bring about reconciliation in spite of weak faith, in verses 8 to 11, we see that God's ways may include the blessing of others and their own transformation. Let's take a moment and read the text. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. And you accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. So we say that God's ways may include the blessing of others and their own transformation. Obviously Esau is a changed man as we meet him now 20 years later. And we note, first of all, as we begin to work through these verses here, that in spite of clear evidence of joy and reconciliation, demonstrated in the embrace, Jacob insists on giving the gift. That's kind of interesting. I mean, you know, and some of it is going to be cultural and the whole idea of accepting a gift or not, but obviously all of that animosity has clearly been demonstrated to be wiped away that that's no longer present. And regardless of the joyful embrace and everything like that, Jacob's still going to go forward with this gift. But then we also see that that Jacob, or excuse me, Esau himself has been blessed in these 20 years. Verse 9, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Now, we don't know everything that Esau has. Uh, we can go back and now add to whatever he had before, this lavish gift that Jacob brought. But whatever it was, it was enough to be able to muster 400 men uh, to go with him and uh, to have quite an army. So he seems to be quite wealthy uh, in his own right. And so, you know, and he makes the statement in verse nine, which we should take at face value as well. 
Now, then it gets interesting in verse 10, Jacob likens seeing Esau to his encounter at Peniel. Uh, and I find this just fascinating. You no, know, he says, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, setting up this conditional uh, clause, if then, right, uh, then accept my uh, present from my hand. So if indeed then you look upon me favorably, then the only course of action that I want to accept at this point is this present. We're not necessarily looking at that. I'm just pointing out that conditional clause. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. Now, that's fascinating to me because of the previous chapter and his encounter with God and the wrestling and all that stuff. But when he's done with it, what does he name the place? He says, I have seen the face of God and lived. Then he calls the place Peniel. Now that wouldn't just be some glip, you know, nonchalant, not even thinking statement that would have some significance for him to make a statement like that. And honestly, I'm, I'm torn as to how to feel about that because to compare a person to God or at least a a Christophany, a manifestation of the Lord, uh, that would be very different. I mean, we're talking categorically different. Once he realized and his eyes are open to what he has seen, uh, there's no other experience that could be likened to that. Now, I don't want to just get too deep in the, the weeds and tear them apart here theologically, but I, you know, I think we should give him a little bit of poetic license here and a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. I mean, what he's saying is he holds Esau up in such high regard uh, that he didn't ever expect this. And now that he gets to see him and he's living, right, because he saw God and lived, and now he's seen Esau and lived. I think there's a lot of parallels to that. Now that he has seen Esau and lived, even though the last time uh, he was promised death, and he knows that to see God, you should die as well. I think that those are the parallels that we're going for. And so now that he has this joyful embrace with his brother, he can compare the two in that way. And, and it is poetic, but it it also helps tie the whole narrative together. Then in verse 11, Jacob's subservient language seeks to undo what was accomplished in Genesis 25 and 27. The birthright and the blessings, remember, those were stolen through deceit and cunning. However, he cannot give them back. So, you know, is he really trying to undo it? Well, it it sort of seems that way. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt gracious with me because I have enough. And I, you know, I know that Esau has already been blessed and the, the promises that are coming about because of the birthright and because of the blessing, uh, those are, are obviously present here, but it seems that he wishes he could walk some of that back. Maybe there's a hint of regret in all of that. I'm not sure. Uh, but you can't turn those things back and you have to trust the Lord as you go forward. One commentator notes on this that it was impossible for Jacob to give back the blessing, but it was not impossible for him to share the fruit of the blessing with his brother. This one word would be sufficient to recall the earlier tensions over the blessing, and it would indicate to Esau that Jacob was trying to make restitution for his wrongs. So interesting note there. I mean, he's trying to to do all the right things as he comes back into the land. He's not looking for that strife. He's not looking for a quarrel. And finally, Esau graciously accepts the gift. 
So it's neat to see all this come about. God in his blessing of Jacob has blessed Esau and brought about a transformation in his own life. One of the things that I've noticed over the years is that we often, you know, I think this is kind of the proclivity of all mankind. We look at the situation around us, our relationships and all those things, and somehow think that, you know, we do have influence and, and all of that over those things, but we probably give ourselves a little too much credit. If God wants to work through us, great. Uh, thinking about the whole process of salvation and Christian sanctification, uh, specifically the process of salvation, uh, thinking of, um, I believe it's 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, where Paul says that he is thankful that he didn't baptize any, and he said, you know, some water, some, you know, uh, some plant the seed, some water, but God gives the increase. And that's, you know, that's the whole point. We're not we're not responsible for it from an overarching, grand, sovereign picture. God is the one who is over all of that, not us. What that means is you don't know what's going on in somebody's life. And just because you're not present to see it doesn't mean that it doesn't happen because you weren't there. Esau or Jacob is not around to have any influence on what's going on in Esau's life, but what's interesting to see from examining this narrative is that God brought about a work in Esau's life. Did he bring salvation to him? No, but he changed him. I mean, the the heart of the king is like water in in the hand that's directed wherever he wants in in the king. You know, that's how the Lord does that. He, He can move anybody that he wants and do what he needs to do to make sure that his sovereign will will be accomplished. He does that in Jacob and Esau's life. He's doing it in our lives. And because he is sovereign, he's doing it every single person who is on the face of the planet right now and who's ever gone before us and who will ever come after us until the end of the age, uh, whenever that may be. And that's the point. Uh, Only somebody who is sovereign, only somebody who is infinite, only someone who is eternal, only someone who is omnipotent uh, can do all of those things. We, We really can't do any of that. God can do it with billions of people all at once because he is sovereign. And that's pretty encouraging to me. All right. So remember, we're working with this idea that believers ought to trust and acknowledge God in the midst of difficult circumstances. Uh, We've seen that God is able to bring about reconciliation in spite of weak faith. Now in verses 12 to 17, we see that believers should not use deception in trying to follow God's will. So let's just take a look at this, verses 12 to 17. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, but Jacob journeyed to Sukkot and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkot. And uh, uh, so very interesting to see what's what's coming on here. we say again, in principle, believers should not use deception in trying to follow God's will. Immediately, 
the reconciliation has already taken place and it seems that Jacob is already reverting back to muscle memory, if you will, and deception. Maybe he doesn't even know what he's doing, uh, but it's very obvious from the text. This should be the lesson of Jacob's life. He has been, you know, protected in such a miraculous way, uh, even divinely directed back uh, from Paden Aaron, uh, from Laban's land, back to this place. He's wrestled with God. He's been reconciled to his brother. In spite of all the things that he did, he was powerless to do any of that. God went before him in everything, and yet he still feels the need <laughs> to deceive again. Esau is extending an invitation of fellowship, verse 12, saying, let's go on together. And <laughs> You know, reconciliation has already happened. It's not uh, necessary to suppose that reconciliation would require living together, but he's just saying, hey, let's journey together. Uh, And Jacob feigned an excuse not to travel with Esau in verses 13 to 14. I mean, this excuse is ridiculous. Uh, It really is. He says the children are frail, okay, not giving uh, credit here, uh, and assuming that his brother is going to drive at a hard pace. What makes you think your brother might not just slow down and travel with you at your pace, okay? The nursing flocks and herds are a care to me, and if driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die? That's that's a huge statement, and, and clearly not true. I'm pretty sure Esau would have known that that wasn't true, and uh, children, I mean, m- maybe there are some babies in, in there. And of course, yeah, there are. We know that there are some very young children involved here. But the fact of the matter is, is he's just looking for an excuse and he's making it up. And I think Esau probably uh, can see through that, you know, and and we see evidence of that in verse 15. He's like, well, if that's such an issue here, let me leave some of these 400 people here. They can help you along the way. Obviously, you just, you know, this is too much for you. (laughs) You could almost laugh at it. Because I think Esau does see through this. And then Jacob declines. And again, he's deceptive in there. What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. Uh, He just didn't want to travel with him. And and he didn't go to the same place. Uh, That's interesting. He says, I'll meet you up in Seir. uh, Meet up with you, excuse me, in Seir. And so that day... Esau returned on his way to Seir. Doesn't mean that he was able to get there in that one day, verse 16. But Jacob journeyed to Sukkot, uh, but an adversative conjunction there is saying that he, you know, it's, it's different. He, he doesn't go to Seir. He ends up in Sukkot. And if you read on ahead, he's going to go from Sukkot to Shechem uh, and so forth. So, you know, there's, there's definitely deception here. Uh, Jacob to Sukkot, where he built booths. That's the word play, hence the name. That's what it means. And so when we talk about Sukkot today, which is one of the Jewish holidays, uh, it's the festival of booths. That's what it's talking about. And it ties all the way back to this and to the Exodus as well, when they are living in booths and tents. Uh, And by the way, this signifies a little permanence because uh, that's important considering the last 20 years outside the promised land where Jacob uh, was told by God that he would be able to return, there was no permanency when he is in Paden Aaron. Here, he's able to begin building homes for himself. He built these booths. He built a house, made booths for his livestock. Now, that, that obviously indicates a little bit of permanence. 
All right, uh, verses 18 to 20 then. Uh, I think we'll go ahead and take these as the chapter ends up. There's a third and final principle in this chapter on reconciliation. Remember, we ought to, as believers, trust and acknowledge God in the midst of difficult circumstances. We've seen that God is able to bring about reconciliation in spite of weak faith, verses 1 to 11. Verses 12 to 17, believers should not use deception in trying to follow God's will. And in verses 18 to 20, believers need to acknowledge God's work in their lives. They need to acknowledge God's work in their lives. Let's read this. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paden Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. All right, believers need to acknowledge God's work in their lives. Uh, God brought him safely back into the land, verse 18. He arrives safely, and this is a testament to the promise of God back in Genesis 28, verse 15, and now it has come full circle. Verse 19, uh, we see now his purchase of land indicates permanency, not only his building of uh, his house and the booths in the prior chapter, but now he's going to go and actually purchase the land on which he built those things. So he owns the land, owns the structures. He's not leasing it. He's not renting it. There is some permanency here, and he is acknowledging God in the final verse. That is what he does in the setting up of this altar. Very reminiscent, by the way, of Genesis 28, verse 18, uh, to recall when God visited him at Bethel. And so that's interesting there. But the interesting thing here is the name that he gives to the altar, this El Elohe Israel, uh, roughly translated or shortened version of this would be the altar of El. And El is Elohim, short for God or Jehovah, as some people take Elohim to be. Uh, but it's the altar of El, the God of Israel. So it is a shortened version, which means that he is the God of Israel. And by the way, he is Israel. Uh, it's good for us to think of that. So, you know, the God of Israel, but it's really the altar of the God of Israel. So we come full circle then. God is able to bring about reconciliation in spite of weak faith. Believers should not use deception trying to follow God's will. Believers need to acknowledge God's work in their life. This is all a part of reconciliation because believers, the big overarching principle, ought to trust and acknowledge God in the midst of difficult circumstances. If all of this is God's will, reconciliation, and he, by the way, is reconciling the world to himself, read 2 Corinthians 5, 16 to 21, we are admonished to be reconciled to one another, Matthew 5, 24, and to not let the sun go down upon our wrath. And so we need to be able to acknowledge God's presence and his working in our lives and in the lives of others, even in the midst of difficult circumstances, as we pray for and seek reconciliation where it is needed in our lives. Well, that's all we have time for today. We'll pick it up as we jump into Genesis 34 in our next episode. This has been another podcast of expositional excerpts with Pastor Matthew Pilch. If you'd like more information, please visit our church website, at gfbc.net.